Business and estate planning are two topics no one ever wants to deal with, but the truth is you have to. Stephen Goodman is the president and CEO of SHG Planning, who has more than 30 years of experience. In this interview, Stephen gives Joe real-life examples to make all the areas of both business and personal estate planning simple and easy to understand. They also discuss topics that you might not have thought to include in yours, such as who's going to manage all this after you're gone and why it might be beneficial to have multiple successors. Let's just get right down to business. This, this is the Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the show. Let's start by giving our listeners some insights into your background. Well, Joe, thank, thank you very much for having me. My, my background started out in public accounting, worked for one of the big four accounting firms, KPMG. I'm a CPA. Um, I'm also an MBA and have my MBA in finance. I worked for JP Morgan for three years in their private bank. And for 30 plus years, have been the owner of a consulting firm, SHG Planning, that does sophisticated work in business succession, estate planning, risk management planning. That's great. And, and kind of where, where did you learn all, you know, where'd you get your expertise from? <laughs> well, well, look, obviously I went to school with an undergraduate degree in accounting and got my MBA in finance. So certain of my knowledge came from schooling, but I, I would say that the combination of, I've always been an avid reader. So I just consume so much information coupled with, you know, on the job experience, you know, just real world, real life experience, the combination of those two, even more than my education has really given me the foundation for my knowledge and what I do. So with the clients that you work with, you know, what specific areas do you typically, you know, provide services for? Well, one big area is succession planning. You know, if I have family businesses, you know, transferring a business from one generation to the next businesses that have partners, you know, what happens if something happens to a partner could be key employees. I'm not I'm not like a business broker, so I'm not necessarily trying to sell people's businesses. It's more where the business is going to stay within either the employees, the family or, or partners. And then that kind of dovetails into estate planning, which especially now with a new administration, that's going to probably, you know, lower the amount you could pass tax free and thus increase the liabilities is going to become more important. And usually the business is a big part of their estate. So it kind of dovetails. And then we also get involved in risk management, insurance planning that dovetails in with their estate and succession planning. All right, cool. Well, let's go into the business aspect because, you know, myself and, you know, a lot of people I know, obviously they either they're a solo entrepreneur or they have many employees or they have multiple partners. What are some of the key things that they should be looking at doing currently, you know, in structuring their operating agreement with, you know, partners or family members? Well, one thing I always say to everybody is if you own a business, everybody has a succession plan. It may not be planned, but there's a succession plan. So what do I mean by that? A good number of people are sole owners. They don't have kids in the business. They don't have partners. They may have employees, but the employees either don't have the expertise or the money to run the business. So what is the succession plan? You know, if they're fortunate enough to stay alive for a long period of time and they're healthy, at some point they'll sell their business to probably an outsider somewhere. If they're not fortunate enough and they get sick or they die, the succession plan many times is the business is going to fold. 
because some businesses have value, but that value diminishes significantly if somebody is either sick or dies because they're not really in a position to adequately negotiate a good price to sell. So the only way to really protect that is to have adequate insurance. You know, you have life insurance, you have disability insurance, so that God forbid something happens to you, you protect yourself and your family by the fact that your business is either going to be worthless or your business is going to be worth a lot less than it would be if you were to sell it to an outsider. If you have a little bit more of a sophisticated situation, you have partners, well, you need, and sometimes it's equal partners. Joe, you and I are 50-50. Maybe you're 75 and I'm 25, or I'm 75 and you're 25. Every one of those has different issues, but let's use the simple one, 50-50. You know, we're 50-50 partners. Well, what happens if I die? What happens if I get sick? What happens if I get divorced? What happens if I can't stand working with you anymore? You know, how do we deal with that? You know, all of those issues have to be in an agreement. You know, how do you value the business? You know, obviously, if I'm sick and you're healthy and we don't have an agreement, you're going to pay me as little as possible because, you know, you can't get insurance on me. I'm sick, you know, so I'm going to be the first one to go. So you're going to sit there and go, okay, you know, I'm going to pay as little as possible or there's nothing in writing. And then I'm going to leave it to my spouse. And now you're going to be partners with my spouse and you don't like my spouse. You didn't like her when we were partners. You're going to like her less. <laughs> she's going to be a pain in the neck to you because she's going to look to protect her interests that she doesn't understand and has no expertise in. So those things, when you have partners, very important. What happens if someone dies? What happens if they get sick? What happens if I don't want to work with you anymore? What happens if I get divorced? How do we value the company so that it's not at that point, there's a there's there's provisions in the agreement that stipulate how you how you deal with those issues so that you're not negotiating it when one person has much more power over the other. All right. When you have kids in the business, much more complicated, because then you have you could have kids in the business, you could have kids not in the business. And what I always say to people is like, I'm a father. My kids are not in my business, but. I've told my kids 77,000 times since they've been born. I love them the same. Oh, I gave this one a red lollipop. I'll give you a red lollipop. This one got a cell phone. The other one gets a cell phone. I mean, you laugh because you know it's true. That's parents. uh, What a parent's never going to say, oh, I love your brother more than you. (laughs) Everybody's the same. I love you. I'm always going to treat you the same. And then one day, Joe, they wake up and they say, wow. I'm 68 years old. I got this big business. I got a daughter in the business. I got two sons not in the business. Almost all of my net worth is tied up in this business. Now, am I going to leave this business a third, a third, a third to my kids when two of them know nothing about the business and put my daughter in a position where she's got her two brothers involved that don't know anything? Am I going to give my two kids not in the business a third each, but give my daughter the voting rights, which... Seems reasonable, except she could totally take advantage of her brothers when I'm and my wife are not there anymore. Do I leave everything to my daughter? But then how do I treat my sons? Because I don't have enough other money and assets to give them things. And I always told them I'm going to treat them the same. So like 
maybe I'm not going to treat them the same. And I lied to them all these years. And, the, and it, this big transaction is going to be so not equal. And like, how is that going to how's that going to lead to my children's relationships? Because as a parent, at the end of the day, if if you look at the scorecard, some parents look at their scorecard like, oh, my kid went to Harvard and my kids, you know, worth one hundred million dollars. So I was a great parent and I'm smart. And my kid went to a school that's a good school. So, like, I get all the check marks as a good parent. I think most parents at the end of the day, the check marks are what's my relationship like with my kids? What's my kids relationships like with one another? Are they going to get together for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, like that's to me the scorecard. And depending on how you deal with these issues while you're alive and then what provisions you set up when you're not is going to go a long way towards whether those things are going to happen or not. Well, unlike let's call it the solo entrepreneur, the single member LLC, I mean, maybe this person is married or has a family, but uh, you know, what are maybe just a few key points that they should be doing within their personal operating agreement or insurance, whatever that may be in case they pass away? Well, like I said earlier, if you're a sole owner, no yep. kids in the business, no kids really to come in, no partner, and maybe no employees really that have the expertise. You either have a business that has a value or you don't. If you're like a service business, you probably don't have a lot of value. You know, if you're a medical practice, maybe you have value because you have patients. And, you know, if you have a real operating business that has inventory and receivables, there's probably value. But all of those values either go away or diminish if you're not in a position to negotiate. So as an example, if, you know, I have a business, I do this consulting work and I have all these clients and you're in the same business as me. And I sit down with you and I say, all right, Joe, I'm looking to retire. You know, I'll stay on for a couple of years. I'll introduce you to my clients. We could probably work out a deal where, you know, there's some value given to me for my goodwill of my clients and, and all of that. But if I drop dead and my wife comes to you, like what negotiating position is she in? Like these clients don't really know my wife. She's not going to keep them as clients. So it has much less value. And you're going to sit there and go, oh, well, I'm not going to pay you a lot of money for this. So the only way to protect my wife is either I have to build up a lot of assets outside my business by saving money over the years, buying real estate, investing in the market, or I have a certain amount of life insurance with disability insurance to protect my family, because that's at least then I know if I die and my wife collects a million, two million, five million, whatever the amount is, I know she's okay. So even if the business ends up being, she gets pennies on the dollar for it, I took care of her. She's all right. She'll be fine. Yeah. Would I like to have seen value go to someone after all my hard work? Yes. But at least I protected my family. <laughs> so, you know, in just what came to my mind is do you believe in, uh, I guess the concept like die with zero, or, you know, leave a portion to the kids or what is, what's your kind of take on when you're putting together these plans and you're, you're doing the initial questionnaire with clients, how do you kind of judge what, you know, is the best position for them to take? Well, there's you hit upon a, a, a good and interesting point. There is no uniform feeling that parent most assuming you're in a good marriage, most 
and let's be chauvinistic for a second and say that in my generation, it's still mostly men that are running the business. Your generation, it's different. But most men, if they're in a good marriage, want to make sure they protect their wife and make sure she has adequate money to live comfortably. When it comes to the kids, there's different opinions. Some people are of the opinion that, look, I love my kids and I want to minimize what the government's going to take. I want to maximize what's available. And I may be charitably inclined, but I want to leave the lion's share of my wealth to my kids. And I would have given them as much as possible. Some people think that way. Some people say, you know what? There's a certain amount I want my kids to get. A million, five million, 10 million. I mean, the richer you are, the bigger that number probably is. And like everything above that, I don't really care. Like I'd give it to charity, you know, I don't need my kids to be, you know, to each have $50 million if something happens to me, you know, because then they, they may never work and they may sit on there, you know what, and not care, you know. And then there's other people that are like the other extreme, almost, you know, like the Bill Gates of the world. Like, I'm just leaving almost everything to charity. Now, it's easy for Bill Gates to say that because he could leave like one percent <laughs> and he's still leaving his kids four hundred million dollars. So, you know, like. Okay, Dad, I'll take 400 million if you're going to leave it to me, even though he's leaving 40 billion to charity. So but some people a lot nowhere near as rich as a Bill Gates. You know, someone could be worth 10 million and say, I'm leaving everything to charity and my kids are going to fend for themselves. So the truth is, Joe, there's no uniform answer there. Everybody thinks differently. You know, myself and some friends have been doing some estate planning over, you know, this year and the last couple of years, just as I think all of us kind of in our 30s now or have families and so forth or having kids, you know, and so many of these questions that come up on the proper planning are hard to really provide an answer for it because you can't predict what's going to happen in the future. Right. And kind of like, well, it's like if your kids are going to be good behavior, well educated or, you know, financially educated and know what to do at a certain time frame, then it's better to leave a lot. If they're maybe in a bad situation, whether it's they got caught up in the wrong thing and they're younger, then it's not good to give them the, that money at that time. And ultimately, you never, you're never going to make the best decision. You're going to be dead. So like, give us some insights on how to best make our decisions when we're doing our own planning upfront, because, you know, my buddies and I have been discussing it. It's like, you know, you can make it up, give some 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 year old, a percentage and all this. But at the end of the day, it's like partially you, you can't predict what's going to happen. So what are some ways that we kind of solidify those questions? Well, for a young, for a young guy that, that was very, wise and mature of you to say some of the things you just said, because you're 100 percent correct. So let's start with no matter what plan you make, it's never going to be perfect. (laughs) And So that first of you have to just go into it saying, I don't know if it's going to be perfect. The job of somebody like me is to not tell you what to do, but to tell you the different things you could do the pros and cons of those different things. And then you have to make your gut as to which of those you are most comfortable. So let me give you examples. One of the biggest reasons a young married couple does not do a will is they're fighting over who's the guardian of their kids if something happens to the two of them, all right? I don't want your brother. I don't want your brother. I don't want your parents. I don't want your sister. I don't trust them. Your brothers screw up. You know, know, uh, they're not gonna have enough room for our kids. So. That leads to a lot of friction. So let me tell you, first off, 
It's only meaningful if you die in a common accident, because 99.9% of the time, you're not going to die at the same time. So whoever dies second is just going to change everything anyway. So if you hate, if you say, I don't want my kids going to my wife's brother and you die first, as soon as your wife gets over the grief, you can go to the lawyer and say, I want to change the guardian of my will to my brother. You can't do anything <laughs> about it. You're dead. You follow what I'm saying? So the only time that is an issue is you die in a car accident, you die in a plane crash, which, you know, the not to say that can't happen, but to not have a will because of that issue when it's the one in a thousand chance you're going to die at the same time is stupid. You know what I'm saying? Because you're not going to die at the same time. So ultimately, you, you're going to end up making a choice by the second person. Second thing is, these are all very important things. That's what this is what we want to hear. We want to hear the nuggets. Really, really <laughs> important. And this is real practical, real life stuff I'm going to talk about. So second thing is you're going to leave your kids to somebody as guardian. Number one, do they have enough room in their house for your kids? Like, are you expecting that your guardian is now going to have to buy a bigger house for your kids, especially if the guardian, even if the guardian's a brother or sister, but it could be a friend. So you need to make sure, A, they want to be guardians. You can never pick someone as a guardian and not ask them. B, you have to make sure that if they don't have this, the room, you leave them in your will. I'm leaving a quarter of a million dollars to my brother or my sister or my friend, and that's, that's yours. That's like my gift to you for watching my kids. And I will expect that you take that money and expand your house or buy another house so that fitting my two or three kids into these other bedrooms, they're going to fit. You know, they're not going to be in a room with your kids and inconveniencing your kid's life. So that's a, a very important thing to think about when you're doing it. Next thing that's important is a difference between being the guardian and being the trustee and the executor. So a guardian is the person who you're giving responsibility for your children, the most important of anything, okay? The executor is really becomes you, usually for the first year or two after you die while you're settling your estate. They, in essence, become you. Like they have to sign things and make financial decisions and invest the money and make all these, like as if you were alive. The trustee is who becomes after the executor when the assets, especially if you have young kids and you leave stuff in trust to them because you're not going to leave five-year-olds money outright, or certainly you shouldn't. All right. So many times the executor could be the guardian, the executor, trustee could all be the same person. All right. Or it could be different people. Normally the executor is going to become the trustee because that's the finance, the person. So let's go through some issues. So let's say I name one person for all of those things. So the positive is simple. One person watches my kids, watches the money, watches everything. Simple. I, if I'm trusting you to watch my kids, shouldn't I trust you on my money? Okay. But there's negatives. The negatives are there's no checks and balances. So nobody's looking over their shoulder. They got control over everything. Now think about this. You die, Joe and you're richer than your executor, your guardian, executor, trustee. It's your brother, but you're more successful than them. And your kids are going to be left from insurance and other assets, a couple of million, three million, four million, two million, one million, five million. Your brother has nowhere near that money. Okay. So now let's think about it. 
your kids, you're going to want your kids to go to camp. You, your kids have been going to you know, Elm Lake camp. Your brother can't afford Elm Lake camp okay, for his kids. So is his kids, is, is he going to send your kids to Elm Lake camp, but his kids are going to go to Joe Smith camp? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not going to work. So what's going to happen is either you're going to want to tell in the will or in talking to them, however, you, you're going to say, I want your kids to have the same things my kids have. So I don't mind if you take some of my money to pay for your kids, because if not, your brother's going to sit there and go, you know, I'm taking care of Joe's kids. Like, you know, Joe wants me to send his kids to Elm Lake. I mean, I'm going to send my kids to Elm Lake. I'm just going to take some of Joe's money and pay for my kids to go to Elm Lake. Now, that's not allowable because that's not my money and my kids money. But I'm going to rationalize and justify why my brother would have been okay with that because he wouldn't want our kids in different camps. And you probably wouldn't want your kids in different camps. Think about that. Kids, they're watching your kids and they're in a nicer camp than his kids. I mean, somehow that's going to lead to some animosity somewhere. What's going on? So many times what happens is you pick the guardian is a trustee, but sometimes you pick another trustee, someone who's like more, maybe your accountant or your lawyer or some financially astute person. And it's a little bit of a check and balance, but you also make sure that you explain to your brother and to this other trustee before you're dead, what your expectations are. Like sometimes going back to what you said in the beginning, you don't say, oh, at 25, I give them a third and 30, I give them a third because maybe they shouldn't get the money. Maybe they're in a divorce. Maybe they're, they're a drug addict or they're an alcoholic or they're being sued by somebody. So a lot of times what you could do is just have a trustee that's given discretion and you kind of let them almost be you. Like, I can't tell you when to give them everything and who to get. And maybe they shouldn't all get the same amount of money because they're in that one is super rich or one is screwed up. You know, so sometimes you give a lot of discretion and you could almost write a side letter outside of the will to the trustees. Like, this is how I think I'm not going to be here when my kids, if I die tomorrow, when they're 15 and 20 and 25, I don't know. But this my gut tells me I want to give you discretion. And this is some this is at least morally how I think about things. And I'd like you to take that into account when those decisions occur. So was this helpful, Jill, what I'm just doing with you? Yeah, I, think to- that's, I think that's great. I mean, you know what? Uh, I mean, you kind of hit on the key points. One, one being insurance for the uh, success, you know, the tr- successor or trustee, you know, any recommendations on how to pick policy amounts, you know, typically term whole life. And do you have any view? Oh, on about insurance or trustee? I want to make sure. I'm well, I, mean, I guess you, you said maybe like if your brother is going to be, you know, the future trustee or in, in charge of the state that you have an insurance policy that helps them get a big, bigger house no, or some, no, no, you're some not type of allocation. Money. You could just leave him some of your money. I mean, if you have if you have enough money, you could say in my will, two hundred fifty thousand goes to my brother, Billy. This is to be used by Billy to either buy a bigger house or expand his house for my kids. If if you don't have enough money to do it, then you could always buy an insurance policy and just name your brother as beneficiary or put it in a trust and the trust stipulates what he's supposed to use the money for. So, you know, he's not going to just go to Atlantic City and gamble with the money. It's going to be used for the purpose that you're supposed to have. As far as what kind of insurance term, whole life, that's a whole separate conversation. You know, my feeling is that the most important thing with life insurance is to have enough, whatever that means. There's no like, you know, it's no Joe, you should have 3 million. It's not like, 
you look in a book and it says that's the amount, you know, who knows? You, you talk it out. The problem today is you can't earn any, anything on your money. So if you die and your wife is going to be reliant on the proceeds, she's not going and buying, you know, you know, mortgages that people are delinquent on as investments unless she's in the business or like trying to find some, you know, real estate she could steal from somebody, you know, at a low price. She's going to put the money in the bank or hire somebody to manage her money. And you can't earn anything on your money today. So you need more insurance because the earnings is very low. What type? Term insurance always should be part because it's cheap. And you could buy a lot of it for very little money. And then you supplement it with other types of life insurance to have some that build up value and you know we're going to be there forever and ever. But most of it, especially for young people, should be term. So, so at minimum, anyone, you know, especially younger folks that have families, that they should have at least a term policy in the amount that if the one party passes away, there'd be enough passive income with a trusted advisor that could pay for the family expenses. Yeah. I mean, what you have to look at is if you die, you say, you know, it's something like this calculation. My wife and I spend, you know, 150000 200000 a year on our lifestyle. Forget money for kids' colleges. You have to build in that or private school as a separate in the calculation. But let's put that aside. Okay, so it's 200000 And of the 200, 30 of it is Joe. Because if Joe's dead, we don't need that extra car. Joe had some life insurance. Joe had some, you know, things that he, uh, Joe had, we go away. Somebody has spent on Joe. I'm feeding Joe. So like oh, 200,000 isn't going to be 200. It's going to be 150 if Joe dies. OK. And then you say, OK, well, I already have X amount of money that's giving my family this amount of income. When I die, what's the gap? Like how much how much more income? Oh, I need 100,000 of income. And then you say, OK, well, if I buy a million dollars of insurance and I'm earning almost nothing in 10 years, I'm going to the insurance is going to pay the 100,000 a year and there's nothing left. So Maybe you say, all right, maybe I need three million of insurance because my wife could eat into a little bit of the principal every year. But at least she's going to have enough money for 25, 30 years. She's probably going to get remarried. I don't need to give her one hundred million dollars, but I don't want her to feel like she's got to sell the house. And because the kids are going to already be part of my French, a little screwed up because they lost their dad at an early age or their mom. Now you don't want to like move them out of the house. Now they've got to go to a new school with new friends. That's not a good thing. You want to keep them as stable. You know, the best thing if something happens to a, a husband or a wife early on is that the kids could stay in the same house at the same school with the same friends. The, the remaining surviving spouse has the same friends, the same support group. You want to make it as easy as possible if something terrible like that happens. So having the right amount of insurance to Make sure that that happens is important. It's important. So when it comes to estate planning, you know, what is the best type of structure or, you know, how do you determine a structural revocable, irrevocable trust? And how do you start out with your clients? Well, a revocable versus an irrevocable trust, very different. A revocable trust is it's really you. It's not out of your estate. It's your assets. If you die, it's part of your estate. It may not be part of your probate. There's two different things. There's your estate for tax reasons, and then your, your estate for probate reasons. If you put it in a revocable trust, it's outside of probate, but it's still part of your estate for tax reasons. An irrevocable trust is means it's irrevocable. You've put something in there that you can't get back. 
So that's now not part of your estate, but it was a gift when you put it in there. So you're allowed to give $15,000 a year, a husband and wife to give 30 to each child, children's, you know, grandchildren, spouses of children. Plus you have this, call it, you know, roughly 11 and a half million that each one could give above and beyond that. You know, which those are all going to go way down, probably with Biden as president. I mean, do we want to hit on that? I mean, you know, let's hit on that real quick is what should people be looking at if they already have maybe a a net worth of 10 million or 5 million or greater, whatever may be. And these uh, lifetime exemptions are going to go down. Is there anything they should be doing right now to start planning for that? What we don't know, Joe, for sure, is if they make a change, there's three things that could happen if the law changes and we don't know which one it's going to be. It's perspective, meaning from the date the law is signed, anything you do after it, the law is the law. But if you do something this year between now and then, you could you're not affected by it. That's one. Second is the law is going to be effective January 1st of 2022. So anything you do this year won't be affected or they could make it retroactive to January 1st, 2021. So it's hard to plan because you could do something that when if they make it retroactive could cause you to have tax negative tax consequences because you did the transaction based on the law today. But then they made the law retroactive to before the date you did the, the change. So it's very difficult right now to do planning because without knowing when the law is going to be effective. So some people will do things like they'll make a loan, a loan to a trust so that if the law goes retroactive, you didn't make a gift. So there may not be tax consequences. But if the law goes January 1st, 2022, you could say, I'm going to make that loan a gift because now I could get away with it. So there's, it's very, very, very difficult today to plan for anybody because without knowing, like this provisions that if you make a gift, that the difference between your basis, like let's say real estate, you buy a a building for a million dollars and you've depreciated it and it's got no basis or negative capital, negative basis, no basis, simple. Today, if you make a gift today, your children keep your basis zero. So if they sell the house, they're going to pay capital gains on that million. But there's provisions out there, not provisions, there's proposals out there that if you make that gift, it causes, it's like a sale. So like it now their basis becomes a million dollars, but they have to pay capital gains tax on that million dollars by making the gift. Oh, you have to pay capital gains tax. Well, you don't want to do that. So if you make that gift and it turns out it goes retroactive and they consider that a sale, now you owe capital gains tax on it. So everybody's in a very, very difficult position today in terms of planning because you just don't know. If you ask me my gut, My gut would be that most things will be either prospective, like from that date forward, or will take place January 1st of 2022. But we don't know. Nobody knows. And and like, is Bernie Sanders' feelings going to catch, you know, be the, the key? Or is more like Biden's feelings? Because if it's up to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they want to take every dollar of money away from anybody that has money, you know, pay 7,000. And, and I am, I'm not being political here because I'm a middle of the road person. I'm not like a staunch. You're, you're just seeing, you're just saying how you're seeing it. Right. It, it's just, so 
The bottom line is my recommendation is people who have reasonable wealth need to talk with a person like myself or a lawyer and get advice. The problem is this, as a young guy like you, God willing, if you live to your life expectancy, you may have 10 more presidents between now and when you go. <laughs> Everyone that comes in is going to they change you. So it was like Bush had a rule. Obama changed it. Trump had a rule. Biden's going to change it. Maybe four years from now, Trump's president again. He changes it back to his rules if, if, the, if he has the Senate and the House. The key is right now the Democrats have a majority in the Senate because they have the tie break vote. They have majority in the House. They have the presidency. And certain tax things could be done by what's called reconciliation. So you only need 50 votes in the Senate to do it. Kind of like what Trump did when Trump put his tax rules in. He used reconciliation. So he because he didn't have 60 votes, he could get the Democrats to vote. So there's a reasonable chance that the Democrats are going to put through tax provisions that don't need any Republican votes. But they have Joe Manchin, who's like sitting. He's like that, you know, like in power. And he's going to say, oh, no, this is too, too liberal of too progressive. So he's almost going to be like the Republican trying to make it reasonable. Um, but once he says yes, the Republicans are not going to have the power to stop them, except if four years from now they win the presidency in the Senate and the House. And then they're just going to go and change everything again, which is why it's like so hard to plan, because you're planning for that president. And if you die during that period of time. Well, you know, at looking at gifting or shifting some assets into a trust, you know, let's say that the uh, exemption does get changed at some point in the future. Right. I mean, is there tax advantages of that those assets being in the trust or is can you kind of talk to the tax aspect? OK, so let, let's let's forget if they make massive changes that my answer may not be accurate anymore. But put the put a, forget the amount of the exemption. Let's just say the rules are they are today. The advantage of me making a gift in trust to my children is that the difference in the value at the date I made the gift and the date I die is now not part of my estate. So let's say you, Joe, you, you and your, your business partners, you're going to buy this land and you're going to develop it. And you think that, you know, this has the potential to be like a home run. Mm -hmm. and, and let's say today, you know, it's only going to cost you half a million dollars to pay for the land. And, and so what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to put this in trust for my kids. And then you lend money to the trust or the trust borrows money you know, from a bank to do the developing. And now, 25 years from now, that 500,000 is worth $20 million. Well, that $19,500,000 difference is not part of your estate. So when you and your wife die, there's no estate taxes. It's now in your kid's name. Now it could be subject to tax when they die, or it could be a generation skipping trust. So it doesn't, there's no tax ever. It goes forever and ever without a tax. I mean, there's all different ways to do it. So the two main reasons you do it is to move the appreciation out of your estate. And then you want to put things in trust rather than give it to your kids, because if they get sued or they get divorced, you want these assets to be protected inside of a trust that nobody can get at it. 
I, so I hope that answers your question. That, that was good. That was good insights. And I think, you know, once those assets are in trust, then typically kind of what are the tax implications either to the uh, beneficiaries or to the trust itself? I don't want to get too complicated here, but there are things called grantor trust and non-grantor trust. Many times when wealthy people make gifts, they put it in what's called a grantor trust. The reason is that the grantor, the parent, has to pay the income taxes on the earnings. So it's like making getting more money out of their estate. So make it simple. I put this you know, $2 million building in a trust and it generates 100,000 of income. Let's assume it was ordinary income just for simplicity. Mm-hmm. And it would, you know, you, you, and make, it, make it simple, call it a 50% tax bracket. So there'd be, there would be you know, 50,000 a year of income taxes due on the 100. If the trust pays the 50, then the trust is going to grow slower because it's taking half of its earnings every year to pay tax. But if I, as the father, pay the tax, I'm reducing my estate. So when I die, I have less money and the trust keeps the whole hundred thousand dollars. So that's what's like a grant to a trust. And there's pros and cons to these different kinds of trusts, which we don't have enough time to get into all yeah. of it. A non-grant to a trust is where the trust pays the tax. It's like a separate entity. So there, if the 100,000 is earned on the building, the trust pays the 50 and the trust nets 50 and mom and dad don't pay it. Now, sometimes the reason for that is that dad says, I'm not paying the tax. I just gave my kids in trust a building that's generating $100,000 of income. Let them pay the tax. I'm not paying Mm. the tax. I don't care that it's good estate planning. I don't want to be writing a check. And then they sell the building you know, eight years from now for $5 million and there's a four and a half million dollar capital gain or a $5 million capital gain. I'm going to pay a million and a half dollars of capital gains tax and they're going to keep the whole $5 million. So sometimes the parent doesn't want it to be a grant to a trust, even though it's good tax planning to do it that way. So I hope that answers your question. That was good. And how about, you know, in, in into the trust, how, how do you appropriately pick the right trustee? Single, I am a, major, major, major advocate of trust. But the biggest issue is who's the trustee? Who's the successor trustee? Because today, you know, you're young. You know, someone my age, I'm 64. So like, I'm not going to pick an 80 year old to be a trustee, you know, most probably not. So even if I pick a contemporary, I may want to have things in trust for 50 or 100 years, like they're not going to be around. And how do I know who I'm going to want to be a trustee? So sometimes you pick alternates, people that at least today you feel would be capable of that role and they're willing to accept the role. And sometimes they won't charge you. They'll do it as a friend. But somewhere after like successor number two or three, you may have to pick like Wilmington Trust Company or, you know, Bessemer, like some bank, you know, because you say, even though. The negative to the bank is they're going to charge and they're, they're like they're rigid. Like, you know, it's not like, oh, well, this your, your grandson says, well, I want this for that. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, the trust says this. So we're going to get sued if we do it. So like you take so the, the negatives are cost and rigid. The positives are they're professional. This is what they do for a living. They got deep pockets. So if they do something bad, they're going to get sued, which is why they're very careful. And you know that they're going to dot their I's and cross their T's. And if you want something around for a long period of time, you need them because what are you going to pick? Your your great, great grandkid who you never don't even know who the hell he's going to be to be a trustee. You know, you can't. So that's a very, very, very difficult 
decision and a critical decision, but but necessary because trusts are very important. And typically, these trustees do they work on like a annual salary, or they work on like a percentage of assets under management for the trust? Or professional trustees normally get paid like one percent of the assets. So if there's ten million dollars, they're going to get you know a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, if the trustee is managing the money and the management fee is one percent, then that's usually how they're going to get paid. They're not going to like charge you two one percents, but that's generally how it is. Now, if you pick me as a trustee and let's say I'm your buddy and I say, I'm not going to charge you to be trustee, but then I'm going to give the money to Merrill Lynch or somebody to manage it. Well, they're going to charge, but that's what they do for a living. But I'm not going to charge you on top of that. You know, so but figure one percent is a fair number of your assets that a trustee is going to get paid. And you think that should, you know, taken into consideration what you said earlier is that animosity between maybe if it's your brother, whoever is trustee, should you also apply something to a similar role for them to get paid? You know, so they feel that they're for their work. You know, you you could you could say I, I want them to get paid or well, that that could be how you solve some of the problems, because you could say, brother, I got five billion dollars. I want you to pay. 50, you're going to get paid 50,000 a year. Now, that's going to be income to you. So you're going to pay income tax on it. You're going to be left with 30. And that 30, like to me, you do whatever you want with it. You know, if you mm-hmm. want to pay your kids to go to the same camp as my kids, you want that's your money. You know, I'm that's part of I'm compensating you for the job that you're going to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Where you have problems sometimes is give you a perfect example. Your parents die, Joe, and you have two siblings and they say, well, Joe's my oldest and he's the most astute. So I'm going to pick Joe as the trustee. But in that trust is the assets for you and your brother and sister. And you end up part of my French. You screw up and you make some bad investment decisions. Now you're in a lawsuit with your brother and sister because they're going to say you were the trustee. This this was my money. You didn't handle it as a proper fiduciary. You took undue risk. Now, of course, if you invest the money and you make them 10 times the money, they're not going to say you should keep a percentage of that. You follow what I'm saying? They're going to just figure, well, that was your job. So that's why you may say, I don't want to be a trustee. Like I, I, I let my brother and sister be co-trustees with me. So we'll make all of our decisions together so nobody can blame anybody, you know, but then you may never get anything done because unless you all agree on something, you can't make a decision. So any which way you take those things, like use Bernie Madoff as an example, right? You know, somebody, I guarantee you, there was a family because a lot of it was up where I live in Long Island. That's kind of where he had a lot of his clients. And I know people who had money with Bernie Madoff. Dad would say to his son, you're going to be the trustee, Joe. But let me tell you something. You are to never, ever sell anything with Bernie. Bernie's a genius. I've made money all these years with Bernie. You are to never sell this. I die. You're managing all this money with Bernie Madoff. And your brother and sister are the beneficiaries with you of that trust. Bernie Madoff's now a crook. Your brother and sister say, how could you ever keep all of this money with Bernie Madoff? Well, dad told me to leave all the money. Well, I don't care. You know, you're a fiduciary. That wasn't prudent to have all of the money with Bernie Madoff. And now you're in a lawsuit with your brothers and sisters. So it's like you could just see all the and, and these things happen. Like I'm not just saying stuff that's like you read in a book. Most lawsuits are between brothers and sisters 
and second spouses and children from the first marriage. That's where most of the lawsuits occur. So it's like dad remarries, woman tries to get dad, maybe has a kid with dad, now tries to get all the money to her and the kid, and the kids are pissed at dad because he married this woman, and dad says, screw my kids, and uh, changes his will and leaves everything to the second spouse, and the kid from the second spouse and the, disinherits his kids, and then there's like, lawsuits between them. That's one. And then the second is amongst brothers and sisters fighting over who got what and who was in charge and who what decisions they made. That's where you find most litigation in those scenarios. Seems like the trustees could be put in a hard spot quite a bit. hundred percent. Being a trustee has a lot of responsibility and risk attached to it. And nobody should take that role lightly without making sure that they understand how to protect themselves. Is that and that's just basically because uh, whenever there's money throw, thrown around, uh, you know, there's always people people out to get it, right? The more money, the more the problems are. All right. Well, let's you know as we're getting to the end here. I guess some of the things that I've seen are the hurdles to people actually taking action on something like this is between the cost, the time it takes to you know do the proper planning, and actually having to make these type of decisions, right? <laughs> So leave us off with, you know, the best way for people to think about this and, you know, the path of least resistance to get started so that they implement some type of plan. Well, you, you've, you've hit me a lot of times, Joe, with very wise and prudent comments. The two reasons people don't plan is time. They're entrepreneurs, let's say more wealthy people, they're entrepreneurs, they're busy. They don't want to take time away from their day-to-day opportunities and problems to deal with something in the future. And secondly, because they don't want to make hard decisions, especially when they're dealing with like a family business and who gets it. That's the main reasons planning doesn't happen. So my my best advice to people are, number one, be open minded, like don't confine yourself just to your little core of advisors to get all your information. Be open to speak to other people, whether you meet those people through whatever mechanism or maybe other friends of yours tell you what their people are recommending and you want to talk to other people. So you get it. And you need an advisory team that works as a team. You should not bifurcate them. And and every advisory team has one person, usually the lawyer or the accountant, that's the closest to the client. And sometimes that person is great because they They know they don't know everything and they want a team to help the client. But sometimes their ego gets in a way and they want the client to think, I know everything. And they like push everybody else away and they don't know everything. Okay, and proper planning isn't done. So second important thing is make sure that you as the as the person with the wealth, that you make sure you have a team that works together as a team. My one of my biggest assets is that. I use like the explanation of like the United Nations, somebody speaking up there, but there's somebody in the crowd that only understands Portuguese, somebody understands Spanish, somebody understands French, somebody understands English, Hebrew. I understand. I don't understand all those languages, 
but I understand all these languages, meaning that there's nothing the CPA is doing I don't understand. There's nothing a lawyer is doing I don't understand. There's nothing the insurance guy's doing I don't understand. There's nothing a financial advisor is doing I don't understand. So it's good to have someone on your team that knows a lot about all these areas and so nothing kind of slips through the cracks because most of the advisors on the team know their area really well. And they certainly know something about the other areas, but there's a lot that they don't understand. So having somebody as part of your team that, that understands all of those areas is a very important component also in it. That sounds good. You know, we always leave off with a, a final question for all of our guests. And today that is, what is the biggest thing that you have implemented in your life that's helped increase your net worth? Well, I guess the, the first thing was going into my own business, you know, which was many, many years ago, clearly being on my own and being able to control and dictate, you know, how well I did on my own. And then I, I'd say, secondly, three things. Secondly, as I made more money, not pissing it away on <laughs> things for today that would have made me feel good, but like saved money. Okay. And then the third thing is being a sophisticated investor and having made, not always, because nobody always makes good decisions, but having made some very smart investment decisions over my life, I would say it's the combination of those three things that have allowed me to be where I am today. And you think for the majority that, uh, you know, I guess that are real young and they're going along the path, obviously they need to get a lot of different experiences and maybe through those experiences that shows them the opportunity of being that entrepreneur or working for themselves, which then, you know, helps create that wealth. And then two, I feel like kind of pissing away the money seems to be a thing, especially when you're young, because you, you kind of want to go through that stage or you want to kind of get those experiences or you want to have things for a while. And then sometimes that wears off. And I think it's great, uh, you know, the younger generation or people who do it at a younger age to experience those different things to kind of get that end result. Yeah, I would say, like I mentioned earlier, Joe, that and it's very hard, very hard is as you become more successful and make more money. Do not change your lifestyle every time that happens. So like, let's use a hypothetical. If you get bumps in income, maybe every third bump in income, change your lifestyle a little bit. Okay. But not based on all three bumps in income, maybe based on the first bump in income. And then like get three more bumps in income and change your lifestyle again, maybe to where the second bump in income would have gotten you to. Most people go... Every time they get a bump, they change their lifestyle. They buy a more fancier cars, fancier vacations, nicer homes. And like they're never really saving any money because their lifestyle eats away at whatever they earn. That's 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 not a smart way to do things. All right. I appreciate that. And for all of our listeners that want to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do that? Okay. Well, uh, first off, if they go to stephengoodman.biz, they could download a free copy of my book on business succession planning, which we didn't get into as in depth in this, but for people who have family businesses or partners, and they could also go to shgplanning.com, which is my website. They'll find like 70 articles I've written. It'll tell you a lot about me. And if they want to, my email is sgoodman at shgplanning.com and cell number best to reach me 516-297-7390. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Stephen, I appreciate coming out today and providing our audience with the great information. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. See you on our next episode. 
Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Joe Robert Show.